Isn't it sweet to trust in Jesus? Amen. I have a friend who's from New Orleans, and she's a great musician and a singer, songwriter, like so many people are in this town. And she, after 2005, when Katrina plunged her city under water and, and catastrophic loss of life and property, she wrote a song called Sweeter and said it's even sweeter to trust Jesus in times when it seems like everything's falling apart. I know that there are marriages that are falling apart. I know that there are uh, health that is falling apart, bodies that are falling apart. I know that there are churches that are falling apart. I know it seems like uh, you know, governments are falling apart often. It seems like businesses are falling apart. But I wanna remind you that even in those times, it's even sweeter to trust in Jesus, to lean on his everlasting arms. It's such a privilege and a joy in those times uh, of crisis. So if you're going through a tough time, I want to encourage you to, to trust even more and ask God to give you grace to trust him even more. Did you arrange that one? That's beautiful. You wish you, I wish you had too. That's beautiful. Thank you. That was really well done, uh, choir. Summertime, a lot of folks are traveling. Um, I can't, uh, I'm really going to miss, Morgan was like, I'm going to be out four Sundays with the kids and we were really sad about it. Uh, I'm going to miss you guys, but you're in very capable hands next week. Alan Wharton, who's one of our just great Bible teachers, he's back there in the back with his family. Uh, he's going to be preaching from 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. And then the next week on July 3rd, Dr. Bill Sherman is going to be with us to preach on true freedom, an Independence Day kind of sermon. What is true freedom in Christ-like from Galatians chapter 3. And then uh, on Ju July 10th, Dr. Frank Lewis is going to be with us uh, as well uh, from First Baptist Nashville. Again, one of my mentors and heroes, just a great man of God who's going to be preaching from 1 Corinthians 12 about spiritual gifts. Then on July 17, I'll be back and we're going to talk about communion from 1 Corinthians 11 and we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper together. Don't miss it. It'll be a special time together, uh, July 17. So I'm going to miss you guys, but uh, you're in very capable hands. Aaron and our staff will be back. Uh, we are, the personnel committee is putting together a job description for a, a youth college student minister uh, position. They are working diligently on that. In the meantime, I'm just so proud of how our church has stepped up. You know what I mean? Well, I remember we had staff leave before, and I'll never forget Linda Hunt back there telling me, we got this. We're going to step up. We've done this before. We're going to do it again. And it's just been so great to see uh, Logan Newton playing ball with my son. Uh, my son mentioned, you know, he just really enjoyed that time. Just all of our people who are stepping up to uh, minister during this season. Thank you for, for filling those shoes. Today's text, again, is from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 as we're talking about all for the gospel, living a life of purpose where everything points to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And our text for today centers around the theme of a very serious threat to the Christian life, the threat of idolatry. Idolatry sounds like one of those old-fashioned words that you, you, know, you hear in church sometimes, and if we're honest, we don't really think that it has a lot of relevance to our lives every day. I'll admit I don't often specifically pray that the Lord would deliver me from the sin of idolatry, but the truth is that we're all in constant danger of falling for this trap of idolatry. Quite often, the, the, we're tempted to view temporary worldly things 
as ultimate things, things that define us, things on which we are building our lives. And often these are good things. Family, not a bad thing. Work, not a bad thing. Accomplishment, not a, a bad thing. But they quickly become that foundation on which we are basing our lives. They quickly become that thing that we live for, that gets us out of bed every morning. And at that point, these things have become idols. John Calvin said that our hearts are idol factories, just pumping out idols one after the other, constantly churning out false gods. Tim Keller has a, a very helpful book on idolatry called Counterfeit Gods, The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power, and the Only Hope That Matters. In that book, he says, an idol is something we look to for things that only God can give. And if anything becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, to your meaning in life, to your identity, then that has become an idol. If we look to some created thing to give us the meaning, hope, and happiness that only God himself can give, it will eventually fail to deliver and break our hearts. Okay, a broken heart is a bad thing, right? That's, that's painful, but idols can do a lot worse than that. Idols can absolutely shipwreck your life if you don't make a course correction. Keller elaborates on the, the dangers of idolatry. An idolatrous attachment can, can lead you to break any promise, to rationalize any indiscretion, or to betray any other allegiance. That's such an important word, allegiance, in order to hold on to it. It may drive you to violate all good and proper boundaries. To practice idolatry is to be a slave. So our very freedom is at stake here. And you know, today is, is Juneteenth. It's a day when our country remembers and celebrates freedom for all people. And it's crucial for us as Christians to think about how do we live free of the shackles of idolatry? How do we live free from the counterfeit God's hold on our lives? Because if it's left unchecked, our idols are, are gonna ensnare us. They're gonna force us into a, a life of sin, a life of suffering, a life of shame. Today I pray that we can all take an honest look at inward into our own hearts and see if there are little altars there that we have set up to counterfeit gods that will ultimately lead us to places that we do not really want to go. So before you read our text for today, I want to go ahead and give you the outline so you'll know what to look for. It'll be on the screens. I'm calling our outline, Numbers to Live By, Escaping the Trap of Idolatry. What you see here is, I couldn't find three. I got five, four, two, and one. Uh, sorry for those of y'all that, that need a, a, a nice Baptist list. Uh, all I have is five, four, two, and one, one, one. We're going to see the number five, five things that God has graciously done for us. Five divine blessings that come from God. Then we're going to see four, four ways in which we've selfishly and sinfully responded to God's blessings. Four fleshly misdirected desires of our hearts. 
Then we're going to see two, two ways in which we ought to respond to balanced warnings. And finally, we're going to see the number one, how as Christians we have a new reality, one Lord, one bread that we share, one body that we participate in together. So let's stand in honor of God's word this morning as I read our text for today. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 22. Hear now the word of the Lord and these numbers to live by. Listen for the numbers. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are, are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I don't want you to be participants with the demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Absolutely not. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may have a seat. Paul's a little sarcastic, isn't he, at the end there? I kind of I like that. I can relate to some of his sarcasm. Okay, I don't like numbers, okay? I'm, I'm a right-brain kind of guy. May and I are the right-brain creative people in our family. Everyone else is pretty left-brain. Morgan does, like, our bills. I'm thankful that she's a banker's daughter and that she has a really good left-brain. I'm thankful for people like Tim Galden, who's our finance chair this year, who helps us with the church budget and those things, because that is not my gift. I'm grateful that Valerie Williams, our deacon chair, is really good with, with money and numbers because, again, I don't really speak numbers uh, very well. But in this text, 
we see that we're confronted with some numbers and sometimes you, you gotta face the numbers. Sometimes you, you just gotta crunch, crunch the numbers yourself and see how you stack up. If we're not going to fall prey to our idols, then we must honestly face these numbers. First, we see these five amazing things that God has done for his people throughout history and that he continues to do for us in even greater ways than he did in history. God's nature is love. God is agape love, which means what? It's gift love. It, God delights in his nature, his essence is to give and to give and to give and to give without seeking anything in return. He doesn't need anything. 24 seven, he doesn't sleep. He doesn't eat. He doesn't stop giving. He never runs out. He never exhausts the resources of grace because it's infinite with him. And he loves to lavish good gifts of grace on his children. In the first four verses here, we see these five ways that he has blessed his children. In verse one, he says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud. Do you remember that from Exodus? God's people, when they were in Egypt and God called them out of Egypt, were under this supernatural protection and guidance of God's presence exemplified by a cloud. Exodus 13, the Israelites are making their escape from their captors. We're talking maybe two million Israelites fleeing on foot in the Passover experience. And they're led by the presence of God as a pillar of cloud. And then they reach the Red Sea, remember? And they panic. I would panic too. They see the Egyptian army coming after them. And, and God's children sound a lot like my own children. It reminds me very much of my own. Look at Exodus 14, starting in verse 12. They say to Moses, is not this what we said to you? They're saying, I told you so <laughs> in Egypt. Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, calm down, <laughs> fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Tell my kids, be quiet. <laughs> Just zip the lip and watch. And then skip to verse 19. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them. They're probably like, oh no, God was leading us. Now he's going the other way. Should we go back? No, look. He stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there the cloud and the darkness was. And it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. God put himself in between the enemy and his people as a cloud of protection. And you know what happens next? The next blessing, number two, is that God makes a way where there appears to be no way. The rest of verse one says, all passed through the sea. No one was lost. No one was left behind. 
The, the arrows of the pursuing Egyptians didn't take a few of them out. All passed safely on dry land, miraculously, through the roaring waters. Then verse 2 shows us the third blessing. It says, they all were baptized into Moses. This means they were put under Moses' leadership. God, in his grace, gifted them with a human representative of his own, a great prophet, unlike there would be no other prophet as great as Moses until John the Baptist arrived. He was God's man for the job to lead God's people out of slavery. That They were baptized into Moses as a good shepherd to lead them to the promised land. And then the, the next two verses are, 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 the next two verses show us the last two blessings. We're told that in verse three, they all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. This has a twofold meaning. First, it means that God provided supernatural food, manna from heaven for them, and water from the rock. We know that, that Moses hit the rock and water gushed out, providing for his people. But more importantly, it means that God nourished them spiritually. In verse four, Paul clarifies this and says that Christ was present, that Christ was the rock which provided for God's people spiritually. We know that Jesus the Messiah was already working in the history of salvation, even back in the first Exodus story, which sets up the second and greater Exodus story, where God leads his children out of captivity of sin forever. Jesus was present then, he's present now. We know that Moses lifted up the, the, the statue on the stick so that the snake-bitten people would look to the statue and therefore be saved. We know that that was representing Christ, who would, that people would look to Christ when he was lifted up from the earth and be saved from the venom of sin and suffering forever. So how would you or I respond if God did all these great things for us, I'd like to think that we'd say, wow, God, you're so amazing. Thank you so much for providing a miraculous way out, God. Thank you for providing the, the serpent on the pole that we could look to and be saved. God, thank you for giving us spiritual and physical nourishment. Thank you for meeting all of our needs. We'll follow you anywhere you go because we know that following you is gonna lead to something good because you are our good, good Father, but that's not what happens. <laughs> I, I, I don't know how we, we would have responded. I, I'm not sure we would have done any better because of our own fleshly desires that go straight to our idols time and time again. Look at verse five. Nevertheless, in spite of all this, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness if you have the NIV translation, it, it says uh, their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. That's closer to what the, the Greek says. It says something like their corpses were strewn about the desert. That's really the image here. The generation that received the supernatural provision and protection of God were destroyed in the desert because of their hardness of heart and their own unbelief. As God's new covenant people, we're supposed to learn 
from the mistakes of our spiritual ancestors, right? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. We should learn from what happened to these people. Verse 6, Paul says, now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil. It doesn't work out well, as they did. The, the philosopher James K.A. Smith, I wrote my dissertation on some of his work, says that we humans are not primarily thinking creatures. You know, Descartes says, I think, therefore I am. And this kind of rational uh, thought that this says that we're like brains on a stick, that's who we are fundamentally as humans. James Smith says, no, we are desiring animals. We are creatures that love things. We have passions, we have desires that go after things, and that leads us in our lives more of a gut level than more of, of a head level. That's a closer uh, theological anthropology. That's the, the fun uh, theological word for that. All that to mean that we, we go after what we love, we chase what we love. Therefore, sin is really the result of misdirected desire. When our fallen desires take precedence, we sin. And Paul gives us four examples here of misdirected desires. First, in, in verse 7, he says, Don't be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. What does that mean? He's talking about the golden calf. In Exodus 32, we see that not only did God's people build a, an idol of a golden calf, but they, they, they feasted and, and they, they had no remorse at all for how they treated their bodies, both with what they put into their bodies and what they did with their bodies as well. What he's talking about is a culture of idolatry, a culture of idolatry. When we go after idol culture, that's a misdirected desire. You know, corporate types who, who worship money and success, they'll often say something like, let's go to Vegas for the weekend and let our hair down, right? That's, that's idol culture. It's the same thing. They, you, you want amusement. Amusement means without thought. And what happens when we live unintentionally and without thought? You usually regret it. It doesn't lead to anything good or life-giving. It's the same thing that he's talking about with idol culture. Then he takes it a step further in verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. God's people respond to all his grace. He leads them up to the promised land, and they get to Midian, and they start going after cult prostitutes. They start uniting themselves with the prophets of Baal. And what happens? One of the priests finally put an end to it, but before he could, 23,000 of them died by the plague. They craved illicit sexual relations that led to swift judgment. So we know that that's not going to lead to anything good. The third misdirected desire was for their own agenda. Verse 9 says, We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. They got impatient. Numbers 21 says that they put God to the test by saying they're sick of the journey, they're sick of the food, they're sick of all the sand getting everywhere, they're sick of the desert. They'd lost their trust, they'd lost their faith that God was leading them somewhere good. So God sent snakes as a reminder of his sovereign goodness. 
And sometimes we put Christ to the test by trying to add him to our agenda. We say, I want to do this really bad, and I'm going to bring Jesus along. <laughs> Instead of saying, I'm, I'm submitting fully to whatever Jesus wants me to do and be and go. That's truly how to live under the lordship of Christ. We want Christ to get on board with our agenda, with our plan done in our way and in our timing. The last misdirected desire that we see is for our own self-pity. I don't know about you, but I can complain with the best of them. My heart goes right towards cynicism and jaded, bitter complaints all the time. For some reason, we think it's gonna make us feel better, but it never does, does it? And it certainly doesn't make people around us feel any better. You ever see a pig wallow in the, some of y'all raised in the country, see a pig that rolling around in his own filth and in the muck, and you, you may say, gross, but why do we wallow in our own self-pity? It's the same type of thing. We love to just feel sorry for ourselves. And after all that God has done for us, who are we to complain about anything? Look at verse 10. It says that God's people grumbled and they, they whined and they were moaning. You know, the, the, the happiest people I know are the ones who often have a lot to complain about. They've had very difficult circumstances in their lives, but they choose praise. They choose gratitude. They, they choose to thank God and be grateful for the blessings they do have rather than complain about their difficult situations. That's how God wants us to live because it's the best way to live. So how do we avoid these mistakes of our spiritual fathers and mothers? Well, the next number we have is two. Again, we don't have a three. I'm sorry. If y'all want to make one up, that's fine. But uh, we're going to go straight to two. Two balanced warnings in verses 12 and verse 13 that help us avoid the temptation of idolatry. First, to those leaders in the church in Corinth who think they have it all together, who think that they're strong in their faith and that they had arrived at some superior place of knowledge, Paul says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. This can happen to you. This could happen to you easily. We're all on a journey, okay? And none of us are there yet. Again, the most holy, godly people that I know are the ones with a deep understanding of their own inclination towards sin. They know the depths of their own depravity and they're constantly digging deeper to understand how far it goes. Then to those who are struggling, and they're the opposite, those who think they'll never be strong, those who think they're just you know, meant to, to always be defeated by sin. Paul says in verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. God is faithful, <laughs> and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You know, so many of us are, are tempted to think, I'm the only one. I'm the only one who's going through this. No one else deals with what I deal with. No one else struggles with what I struggle with. No one else knows what it's like. But that's not true. That's just pride. People have endured much worse than any of us have here. People also twist this verse, right? They, they say, well, you know, the Bible says God will never give you more than you can handle. 
that's not at all what the Bible says. God gives me more than I can handle every day. <laughs> I can't get out of bed without God's grace in my life. I'm unable to of my own strength. But, but God is saying here, he, well, he drives us to our knees in order to find the richness of his inexhaustible spiritual resources of grace and supernatural strength. But he's saying here that you have no excuse when you sin. You can't say, well, I couldn't help it. I, you know, I was in this situation. No, God always gives you a way out. Every temptation you have, again, is, is not uncommon to other people. People have gone through hard things and they've been able to find a way out. God will always give you a way out so that we are without excuse. Our final point is to be aware of this new reality, the unity of one Lord, one bread, one body. We are not the Israelites. We are not the old covenant people wandering around, not knowing what God's up to. We get to live on this side of the cross. We get to live on this side of the resurrection. We get to see things that angels long to look into the mystery of the gospel. We know that this new creation that God is making includes us. We are born again into a living hope, a hope of resurrection. We are regenerated by the Holy Spirit who has come into our lives. And both as individuals and corporately as the body of Christ. And every time we partake in the Lord's Supper, we are enacting the story of the gospel. Look at verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The word for participation here in Greek is koinonia, fellowship. It means participating together, communally. It implies sitting around the table as a family. Our church is so good. I love that our church is a family. There's some of you who are visiting today. We'd love to fold you into our family of faith. It takes a village. Nobody can do it on their own. Christianity is a team sport. We are one body, we're one family now because we have one savior, one hope, one Lord. We've been baptized into one faith. We're not a social club. We're not a, a, a group that you can come and play some games. That's, that's not who we are. We have a kinship closer than blood now. Look at verse 17, because there's one bread, we who are many are one body for we all partake of the one bread, the bread of life that alone sustains us. So how can we unite ourselves now to another God? Now that we've been saved by grace through faith in Christ, how can we unite ourselves to a counterfeit God if we've actually been saved through Jesus? How can we unite ourselves to another body, to another family if we share the same family name and bloodline now? Pagan idols can no longer define us or control us. Look at verses 20 and 21. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I don't want you to be participants with demons, to fellowship, to koinonia with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Choose this day whom you will serve. 
We are desiring animals. Left to our own devices, we're gonna go after whatever our flesh finds appealing in that moment. So how do we live as a holy life now? How do we get over this temptation, this trap of idolatry? First, let's remember all that God has done for us. Remember his power, remember his provision, remember his protection that have blessed us in ways that we never could have deserved. We had a church family that was in a car wreck recently and there was a baby in the car and, and the car rolled two times and it was terrifying. Uh, but just 10 minutes before the wreck, uh, one of the, the, the ladies in the car had told two of the guys, hey, put your seatbelts on. And they kind of went back and forth and they ended up putting their seatbelts on. They, they probably would have died if they hadn't have done that. And they all left completely, a few scratches, but no broken bones. Everyone walked away and the baby's 100% fine. Praise God for his supernatural power and protection. Romans 5, 8, one of my favorite verses, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't deserve this. We didn't deserve what Jesus has done for us. And we think on his amazing grace, it leads our desires away from idolatry, away from immorality, away from our own agenda, away from feeling sorry for ourselves and self-pity, and it points them upward to a new reality of holiness and unity in the body of Christ. We have everything we need because his grace is sufficient. So let's stop falling for the idols and let's live into this new reality together as a family of faith, the body of Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have given us a way out, that we're not just slaves to our idols anymore, but that you have broken the, the bonds, broken the chains of sin, of addiction, of even of all kinds of problems, God, in this world, that, that you have shown us what the answer is, that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have hope eternal, hope that does not disappoint. Not that, that all of our problems go away, God, but that we find an exit from the sin that so easily entangles. God, we're not spared from the, the hurt, we're not spared from the evil in this world, but we are protected from the evil in it. We will have tribulation, you promised us in this world. We will suffer, oh God but we suffer not as those without hope. We suffer knowing a deeper reality, a deeper meaning, and yes, God, we do grieve. Yes, God, we feel the, the, the pangs of childbirth in this world, but we know, God, that, that you are indeed making all things new, and eventually, one day, you will wipe away every tear, and that every sickness will be healed, and that every uh, knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord, all to your glory, O oh God. Until that time, Lord, may we be so captivated by a vision of who you are and a vision of what you're doing and a vision of what you have done that compels us to live a life of holiness, of singular purpose, fixated on you, O oh God. May we abide with you, our good, good Father, as you run to embrace us, may we also run to embrace you, knowing that living with you and for you is 
our good and your glory. God, we thank you for your grace. We can never pay you back for what you've done for us in Jesus, but I pray that you would help us to live lives that are worthy of the gospel, lives that, that support those who are adults with special needs through Friends Life and through adult homes here in Tennessee Baptist Life. Uh, people who take abuse seriously enough to enact reforms in our denomination in order to protect the vulnerable among us. God, I pray that you would help us to continue to partner together with those who are focused on you for the sake of advancing your kingdom around the world until every nation and every tribe knows of your grace towards them. In Jesus Christ, our Lord, it's in his name that we now pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to have a time of response now and sing one of my favorite songs. Uh, Turn your eyes upon Jesus and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Maybe you realize that you've been chasing after things of this world and you're sick of it. Maybe you feel like you've been spinning your wheels and you're ready to get off the hamster wheel and ready to live a life of purpose and meaning by dying to yourself and by living for Christ singularly, unilaterally, completely and wholly focused on a life that's worthy of the gospel. If you've never given your life to Jesus, accepted that free grace of salvation that he offers, there's no better time than to do so right now. I'll be down front to talk to you. Maybe you're ready to join Woodmont Baptist Church and you say, I'm in. I wanna be a part of this family of faith. I wanna get to know spiritual fathers and mothers better. I wanna be a spiritual father and mother. I wanna pour out and be poured into as a member of this body uh, of Christ, this local expression of the body. If that's you today, I'll be down here to talk with you about that. Whatever it is that you need to do during this time, please uh, don't leave this place until you have dealt honestly with maybe the little altars that you've set up in your heart too as you turn your eyes upon Jesus. Let's stand and sing.